Welcome to the Word Encounter episode 237, where we will be concluding and finishing up the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, starting in chapter 14. And so at the end of chapter 13 yesterday, uh, Paul is telling the people that love is the most important attribute that you can have as a Bible-believing Christian. And now he's going to go in and talk about some of the spiritual gifts. It's amazing a lot of times when I uh, read through the Word how similar the issues are between, you know, uh, 2,000 years ago and today. And that just, you know, goes to show that while technology changes, human nature does not change. And so Paul is dealing with his people, and it appears to be, some sort of issue with regard to the importance of speaking in tongues and how some people may uh, think it's uh, more important than other people. Some people may think it's critical, whatever. We have the similar kind of discussions and, and, and thoughts today, as a matter of fact. And so Paul is going to address this by juxtaposing uh, speaking in tongues with prophesying. Now, first thing we have to know is that prophecy is not limited to just foretelling uh, of events to come. It's not limited to just predicting. Prophesying is also uh, includes uh, uh, speaking by divine inspiration, and see, and, and it can be used for exhortation, uh, comfort, uh, can be used to build people up. And so it's not just uh, you know predicting the future. So we're not just going to house prophecy in that box. And so with that, let's get started. Uh, chapter fourteen, verse one. It says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. See, for the person who speaks in a tongue is not speaking to people, but to God. Since no one understands him, he speaks mysteries in the spirit. So you may have heard some people speak in tongues, and maybe you haven't heard some people speak in tongues. And so I believe a lot of times people speak in tongues out of arrogance and out of pride, you know, to show how spiritual they are and whatnot. And that's not what tongues is for. Tongues is a language uh, that is communicating between God and that individual person. And tongues, according to Paul, need to be interpreted. And so, you know, if you're speaking in tongues on your own in order to edify yourself and speaking to the Lord and spirit to spirit, that's one thing. But when you're doing things in public, there's a distinction between the two that Paul makes. And then he says, um, on the other hand, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening uh, encouragement and consolation, see, for their building up to encourage them and to comfort them, okay? And so prophecy can be used for these things. You need to strengthen somebody or a body of people. You need to encourage somebody or a body of people, or you need to console somebody or a body of people. That's what prophecy is for, and in addition to foretelling of events to come. But it says in verse 4, the person who speaks in the tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church or encourages the church or strengthens the church. In verse 5, I wish all of you spoke in tongues, but even more that you prophesy. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be built up. See, so if you're just going to speak in tongues and nobody understands, you know, what the tongues are saying, then they need to be interpreted. Why? So that the church can be strengthened. It's always about strengthening the church. See, we don't do things just for ourselves. We do things to strengthen the church, to strengthen the body of believers. In verse 6, it says, So now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you with a revelation knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So Paul is saying, I come to you and speak in tongues, and I don't, and I don't encourage you. I don't interpret. I don't give you revelation knowledge. 
you know, or any teaching, then how does this benefit you? It doesn't. So let's skip down here because he's going into a lot of, uh, again, uh, comparing tongues uh, against prophesying and, and, and whatnot. And uh, verse 23, it says, If therefore the whole church assembles together and are speaking in tongues and people who are outsiders or unbelievers come in, the word says they will not say to you, uh, will they not say to you, are you crazy or are you out of your minds? See, so Paul is saying, look, if you're in a service and everybody's speaking in tongues and then outsiders come in and they just watch and listen, they're going to think you're crazy. But it says in verse 24, but if, <clears throat> excuse me, but if all are prophesying and some unbeliever or outsider comes in, he is convicted by all and is called to account by all. In other words, what Paul is saying, if you do this, and an outsider comes in, then what will happen, instead of folks thinking you're crazy, the words that are coming forth may convict them in their hearts, and they will turn to the Lord. See? Order in church meetings in verse 26. What then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, excuse me, what then, brothers and sisters, so Paul is posing a question. Essentially, so what do we do now? Whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for the building up of the church. In other words, what Paul is saying, look, when we come together in our services, everybody bring their message, right? Or bring their, bring their portion, I should say. So if you have a song, sing a song. If you have a teaching, bring a teaching. If you have a revelation, bring a revelation. If you have a tongue and interpretation, then bring it. And so whenever we come together, we're coming together for the strengthening and the edification of this body, of this congregation. That's why we're coming together. In verse 34, uh, we, we, <laughs> so this, this is going to be you know, controversial to many and angering to some people. Um, but we have to always remember that in these letters that Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he's dealing with specific issues with specific problems because they wrote him a letter telling him of what their problems were. And so he's trying to address these things specifically and directly so that they can stop causing division and stop causing the church to be ineffective. So that's what Paul is doing. And, we have to remember, because this is about women, we have to remember that women uh, publicly prayed and publicly uh, prophesied. It, it says it in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 11, I believe it is. And that, so they were doing public acts of ministry. And, and so, and it seems here, what I'm about to get into, that, that that's not the case, or Paul is saying that's wrong. But that's not what happened earlier. And so we, what we have to uh, conclude is that he's dealing with specific issues in the service when the people would come together in the service of the body of believers, apparently there were disruptions and there were issues uh, that were being caused by some people. Remember, we have a, a lot of different cultures coming together, and those cultures had women in a certain place. And so these women, uh, is, is, it's possible that they were interpreting their freedoms in Christianity and exercising their uh, Christian freedom in services, but causing disruptions and therefore disrupting the entire thing and nobody was benefiting. And so, verse 34, Paul says, The women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, 
but are sub, uh, but are to submit themselves. So the law also says, or as the law also says. And so again, apparently there were disruptions going on in these services, and there were interruptions and whatnot. And so this was causing a problem, and apparently it was being done by women exercising uh, their freedoms. And uh, and so Paul is ta- trying to um, uh, put that in the proper perspective so that this can stop. Then he says in verse 37, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. Now, he's not just referring to what he just said about the women in services. He's talking about this whole thing, his whole letter. He says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize um, that what I write to you is the Lord's command. In other words, Paul is saying, this this isn't just coming out of my head. This isn't just my opinion. I'm being directed to advise you from the Lord in this manner. If anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. Paul is saying, if you ignore what I tell you, then the Lord is going to ignore you. So then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything is to be done decently and in order. So he's trying to put, um, he's trying to, um, educate them on how their services should run, how their services um, um, should operate so that there's no disruption, so that there's no uh, uh, confusion, so that, there is, so that there is order and everything is being done in an orderly fashion. Chapter 15, resurrection essential to the gospel. This resurrection issue in my opinion, is the crux of everything, not only then, but now. Does one believe that Jesus was in fact resurrected from the dead? If one believes that, then everything that follows his resurrection is available to the believer. That's what the believer has his hope in, all the things that follow Jesus's resurrection. If one doesn't believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, then none of those promises mean anything. See, and there will be, there can be no faith in Jesus if he if he's not resurrected. And so apparently there were some people um, in, 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 in conversations in the body, so-called believers, who still either didn't believe or questioned, you know, the accuracy or the truthfulness, I should say, of the resurrection. And so Paul is dealing with this issue in chapter 15. Let's go down to verse 3. It says, For I passed on to you as most important what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So Paul is saying, I'm passing on to you what I know to be true because this is what I received directly from the Lord. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep or some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So what is Paul doing here? Paul is stating a case. He says, not only did I uh, receive from the Lord directly, but there are oodles of other people that are witnesses to his resurrection. And so he's coming against any any false notion or anything, any uh, um, uh, uh, murmurings or or gossip going around that Jesus didn't you know raise from the dead or rise from the dead or anything like that. So he's coming against this notion. 
See, so he's trying to put it forth. Not only did I receive this revelation directly from the Lord, but there are all these other people who are witnesses as well. And so let's go on uh, to chapter 8. Last of all, he's talking about last of all. Um, well, let me just read it. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. So Paul is saying at the one, <laughs> he says, uh, the one born at the wrong time. What he means by that is Paul was, is the only apostle that did not walk with Jesus prior to his crucifixion. Paul didn't know the pre-crucified Christ. Paul only knew the resurrected Christ. See, that's the only one that he knows. And so he says, last of all, as to the one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle. An, an apostle. <laughs> Impossible. Not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul is saying, look, all the other apostles are greater than me because I actually persecuted the church before I had my encounter. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And we can frame that. We can highlight that. We can bow face that because that goes for everybody. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. In other words, if not for the grace of God, I would be nowhere. And I'm saying that personally. I'm not saying that as if Paul is saying that. I'm saying that personally. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Resurrection is essential to the faith. In verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So, so some of them in the congregation are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. And Paul is saying, how can you say that? How could you call yourself a believer and say that? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. See, if there's no resurrection, the resurrection, the crucifixion and resurrection is essential, is, 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 is essential to be a believer in Christ. If you don't have belief in the resurrection, then you can't be a Christian. <laughs> you can't. You have to believe that after his crucifixion, he was raised from the dead. Verse 15. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ. If in fact the dead are not raised, whom he, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. And so Paul is saying, look, we are lying on God. If we're preaching that Christ has uh, been uh, resurrected or was resurrected, and in fact he wasn't. <laughs> he says in verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. See, We have <laughs> the power of the resurrection is what allows our, us to shed our sins. If there is no resurrection, then we're still in our sins, and therefore we're still eligible for judgment according to the law. In verse 19, it says, if we, are put our, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. And so Paul is saying, look, if you think that this belief in Jesus is just for this life, then this is a waste of time. <laughs> 
This is an absolute waste of time. Go on, do what you want to do. Don't waste your time doing this. Christ's resurrection guarantees ours in verse 20. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the first fruits of those who have died. So Christ has been raised from the dead, and so he's the first fruit of the ones that have fallen asleep. And so as the first fruit, he is the one that's going to issue in the victory over death to everybody else. It says in verse 21, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. Uh, death came through the first Adam. Resurrection comes through the second Adam, Jesus. In verse 22, for just as Adam, for just as in Adam all died, also in Christ all will be made alive. In verse 22, uh, verse 23, but each in his own order, first or Christ, the first fruits, afterward, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Christ is the first fruit, so he's the first one. But then at his second coming, at his next coming, then all who belong to Christ will be resurrected. See, Paul's getting into some theology now. He's getting into some teaching. It says in verse 24, it says, Then comes the end, then comes the end of this age, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power, all man-made rule, authority, and power, Jesus will come and abolish, and then he will hand over the kingdom to the Father. In verse 25, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. So Jesus will come and he will reign over the earth and all the enemies will be put under his feet. All unrighteousness, injustice, all that stuff. Because he's going to present a sinless bride to the Father. And so then in verse 26, the last enemy uh, to be abolished is death. Resurrection supported by Christian experience. Let's go down here. It says, if the dead, he's still on, he's still uh, preaching about the resurrection of the dead. And he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So Paul is saying, if the dead are not raised, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then go out and eat, carouse, get drunk, have fun, party all night, care about nothing because tomorrow we die. So we might as well go out in a blaze of glory. If there's no resurrection of the dead, if there's if there's no entrance into eternity, into eternal life, then let's just do whatever we want to do. Have a great time and just go out in a blaze of uh, glory. In verse 33, <clears throat> do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And so he's warning against the people hanging out with these people that are preaching about there's no resurrection of the dead, even though they may be fellow believers, so-called believers. Paul is saying, look, bad company corrupts good morals. You know, he says, come to your senses and stop sinning. For some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. Now, you cannot make enemy, or excuse me, you cannot make unbelievers your constant, intimate companions and expect not to be influenced. You just can't. That's not to say you can't interact with unbelievers. I'm not saying that at all. For how are you going to deliver the message? How are you going to preach the gospel? How are you going to tell people the good news unless you affect and socialize with them and come in contact with them? But to have a constant intimate companion who is not a believer, then what will happen is it may happen at once. It may happen slowly over time. You can't help but be influenced 
by the ungodly thoughts and beliefs that they're going to have. You just can't. <clears throat> the nature of the resurrection, or I should say the nature of the resurrection body. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? You fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Now, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? That's a question that I would ask, <laughs> quite frankly. <laughs> That's a question that I actually have. And Paul's response is, you fool. So Paul is essentially calling me a fool, and I guess I am, because this is something that I would like to know. He says, what you sow does not come uh, to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. In other words, he's saying what we're sowing right now is only a seed. It's not the body that will be. In other words, uh, the heavenly glorified bodies will not be like those that we are aware of and used to right now you know, flesh and blood bodies and that sort of thing. You know, our celestial bodies, if you will, will not resemble the ones that we have and that we wear today. <clears throat> In verse 38, but God, gives, uh, but God gives it to a body as he wants, and each of the seeds is its own body. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. So Paul is saying how, how the heavenly bodies look and, and their brilliance and their splendor is different than what we know of as human bodies. He says in verse 41, there is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in honor, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. Wow. So what is Paul saying? He says, look, the natural body has to precede the spiritual body. Adam came first, then Jesus came. So he's saying is, what he's saying is, is that our natural bodies that we, that we um, dwell in right now, this is the, uh, the first or, 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 or the, the prerequisite, okay, it's a requirement for the ushering in of our spiritual bodies. So it says your natural body is first, and then your spiritual body comes after it. Verse 47, the first man was from the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. So he's saying the first man, Adam, he was created from the dust. You know, it was from dust to dust. From dust you came and from dust you'll return. But the second man is from heaven. It says in verse 48, like the man of dust, so are those, um, so are those who are of the dust. <laughs> like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. In other words, those who believe in Jesus are going to be like Jesus. In verse 48, 
And just as we have uh, borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This body, this body of ours, this flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. See, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. It says we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this uh, corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. So Paul is saying that, you know, at the trumpet blast, the dead will be raised into new different types of bodies, not the types of bodies that we're aware and familiar with. See, it's going to be different. Your body's going to be different. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. And in the last chapter, chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, um, Paul is, is doing some what I call some cleaning up, if you will, just talking to various people, giving specific uh, instructions to various people. He's, he's detailing his travel plans in the future and his hope to, uh, to come and see them. And he gives a final exhortation in verse 13. He says, be alert, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. In verse 14, do everything in love. And so <clears throat> that's going to conclude our uh, cover of the first Corinthians and tomorrow we'll pick it up in second Corinthians. And we're looking forward to that as we make progress through the new Testament. As always, uh, Jesus is asking us a question. The question he asks everybody on the face of the earth, who do you say that I am? That's the question he's asking. If you say that I am the son of God, if you believe on me, then the word says all you need to do is confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. You will be eligible for one of these new glorified resurrected bodies that is incorruptible. Oh man, that, that's, <laughs> I, I can only, you know, my imagination goes crazy with regard to what, what is that going to be like? What, I have no idea, none whatsoever. But that's the question he's asking. That's the question that he's asking. And he's consistently asking that question. Even after you make your confession, he's still asking you that question. Because you can make your confession and believe in your heart today, and then next week something happens that, caused, that causes you to bring into question what you believe. So that question is always going forth. Who do you say I am? It's a question that he asked Peter. Who do you say I am? Peter says, well, you're the Lord. You're the Son of God. And Jesus says, on this revelation, I will build my church. Hallelujah. Everybody stay safe. Be blessed. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And should he grace us with another day of life, we'll see you tomorrow in the next episode of The Word Encounter, where we would start our journey into 2 Corinthians. Bye-bye.